All right, now, brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles, please take them out with me. If you don't have your Bibles, there's one on the pew in front of you, the same version I'll be reading out of. And please go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians. When you consider the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians is more toward the end of your Bibles. It's in the middle of what we call the New Testament, which starts with Matthew. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. And we'll be in chapter 6 here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I don't know if you, you watch the, the BBC shows like my wife and I sometimes do, but there's one BBC show that's really well done that every now and then I'll watch. It's called Sherlock. It's the BBC version of Sherlock Holmes, okay? And set in London, of course, the season finale of season two of Sherlock starts off really interesting. It grabs your attention immediately. Sherlock's arch enemy, Jim Moriarty, is attending this, um, this tourist attraction where you can go see the crown jewels of England, right? You can walk through and it's behind glass and it's got you know, a, a crown right there and a throne and all the jewels right behind the glass. Well, he sets the alarms off, which means everybody has to go out. And then he makes sure that no one can get in because he takes care of the guard who was there. And he breaks the glass and he sits down and he puts on the crown jewels sitting on that throne. And while he does that, he opens his phone up and with just a couple clicks of a button, he hacks into the security system in the most secure maximum city or maximum security prison in London and opens all the doors, shuts down their security system, opens all the doors to the, the prisoner's cells. And then also he hacks into the system at the Bank of England and opens the vault. And as he's doing this, you can see that the police are just flabbergasted. They don't know which one to go to first and they're having all kinds of problems. But then he does something interesting. Moriarty, he just sits there and waits for the police to come arrest him, just waits. And then he gets arrested. And then pretty soon they've set a trial because they're gonna prosecute this guy for what he's done. I mean, it's on video, it's clear. There's, there's all kinds of evidence of what he did. But when the trial comes, he enters a plea of not guilty. And the prosecution presents their case and all their overwhelming evidence against this man and what he's done. But then when it comes time for the defense, Moriarty's defense lawyer stands up and he says, Your Honor, we have no evidence to present. We are calling no witnesses. The defense rests. Now, remember, he put in a not guilty plea. And they don't try to explain it. They don't try to defend why he's not guilty at all. The courtroom is shocked. And lo and behold, when the jury deliberation comes back, they find him not guilty. And that's the start of that episode. It's fascinating. He's a criminal mastermind. And you learn later that he figured out a way to put pressure on each of the 12 jurors so that they would have to find him not guilty or something horrible would happen to them in their personal lives. But the point is the defense didn't even put up a case. They didn't defend themselves at all. They just rested. That's it. And everybody's shocked. Well, in our text today, I want to show you how Paul and God are encouraging us to rest in defending ourselves when it comes to disputes and those who come against us with things like lawsuits. Look at chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, verse 1. Read down to verse 8. Paul says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Now, I want to draw your attention to verses 2 and 3, because you probably saw something there that caught your attention that I believe is fascinating, that you might think, how, how does that work? But it's actually not Paul's point. Do you see in verse 2 how Paul says, the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Okay, now, hear me on this. This is not the point of the text, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. We don't want to get sidetracked from Paul's main point. You can see how he's just using that to support his point about disputes and lawsuits among brothers and sisters in Christ. But I don't want to run over this without addressing it because some of you might spend the whole sermon thinking about, how are we going to judge angels? What is, what is that like? Okay. Now, we don't know exactly what this means because the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of information on this idea that we are to judge the world and that we will judge angels. But we do know from what Paul is saying that when Judgment Day comes... In some way, us everyday ordinary Christians will judge the world and we will judge angels. Now, how does that work? I've got a guess. It's an educated guess. I think I've got some support in Scripture. I want to present it to you just quickly before we move on to Paul's main argument. When it says we will judge angels, I don't believe it means all angels. I think it means a certain su subset of the angels, the ones who fell the ones who rebelled. You see, Satan and demons were formerly angels who were obedient to God. And at some point before the fall of man, before the Garden of Eden, Satan led a rebellion against God and got lots of other angels to rebel with him. And now those angels are evil. They're demons. And so Satan and demons are actually angels in the way that they were created. And I think that's who we are going to judge. But even then, how does that work? I think it works something like Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 12 go like this in verse 41. He says to those around him, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You see what Jesus is saying there? What he's saying is, the people of Nineveh and the queen of the south, they, they in a sense put faith in God. Even when they didn't have Jesus right there with them. They didn't have Jesus with them. And in Jesus' day, Jesus was there doing miracles, preaching. The, the manifestation of God was right there in front of their faces, and they still rejected him. In the same way, I think we're going to be like the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south. 
God is going to, in a sense, call us as witnesses against Satan and his angels. On Judgment Day, God will say to Satan and demons, you all had access to my throne room. You all were in my presence and you rebelled. See those people? They're weak humans. They're ordinary, everyday Christians. And they held their faith firm to the end and they couldn't even see me and they didn't even have Jesus right there with them. So they are going to condemn you. They are going to sit in judgment over you. Do you see what I'm talking about there? Do you see how that works? And so when it says we will judge angels, I don't think there's any special seat of judgment that I'm going to have to sit and and tell Satan or his angels where they are going for all eternity. But I do believe God will use us as judgment witnesses who did not have the access to the Father that they did. And we held our faith firm to the end while they rebelled. It's a condemnation by, by way of witnesses. But you see, Paul's point is not that we will judge angels or how we will judge angels. Paul's point is that if we're going to do that, can't we judge smaller matters here on this earth? Can't we trust one another to judge small disputes if we're going to judge the world and judge angels? He's saying, why do Christians have to take disputes that arise within the church to secular courts to be argued and decided before a watching world including so many who do not yet know Jesus. And so let's, let's address what Paul is mainly saying today. He's talking about disputes within the church, disputes within the body of Christ. You see, 1 Corinthians is all about unity. It's all about unity in the church. You'll see it as we go through Corinthians. This church had tons of problems, tons of threats to their unity as a body of Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me in your text one more time. Paul says, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See, Paul says, It's already a defeat for you to have lawsuits and disputes among yourselves. Think about our church. Think about this body of Christ. If we have disputes among ourselves... Disputes that have people thinking about taking it to law, that right there in and of itself is a defeat for us. Why? Because the church is supposed to be the place where we're showing one another the self-sacrificing love of Christ. The church is supposed to be the place where we're serving one another and caring for one another and laying aside our own needs and wants and our own rights for the good of everyone else. The church is the place where we are supposed to be Christ to one another. And so he says, to have disputes among you like this, that in and of itself is already a sad defeat for you. We are not treating one another with the love of Jesus if we have these kinds of disputes among brothers and sisters in Christ, within the body of Christ. Look at verse 1. In verse 1 he says, When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul says, when you have a dispute, if one arises, and I I pray that it doesn't. We're, We're very blessed right now at Columbia Christian Church to not have this infighting going on. But what if a dispute does arise? 
between a brother and brother or a brother and sister in Christ within the church. But Paul says, don't take it to a secular court in front of a watching world. Don't take it to the courts. Settle it amongst you. Can we not allow the elders to settle disputes among us? The elders in our church whom God has given spiritual authority, whom God has given a special spiritual gift to oversee the brothers and sisters in Christ, can we not all submit to them and to their judgments for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ? Let the church settle it. Those outside the church, they're going to settle things in a worldly manner. Think about it. People who don't know Christ, they're going to settle things in a worldly manner. Out there in the world, it's every person for themselves. Out there in the world, it's everybody trying to get as much as they can get. It doesn't matter what everybody else feels like. In the church, God's calling us to settle things differently. God's calling us to respond differently when someone wrongs us. The church is the place where we sacrifice ourselves and our own rights for the good of the other. And think about this. Think about how much this hurts the witness of the church in the community. When two people within a body of Christ take their fight public into courts of law. Think about how much this hurts the witness of the church in the community. I don't know how many of you follow professional sports, but there is this unwritten law, an unwritten rule among professional sports teams that if we have trouble, if we have an argument within the team... If we have a dispute amongst ourselves, maybe between coach and player or player and player, we don't air out that dirty laundry to the media. We handle this in-house. Right? This is an unwritten rule in professional sports. You handle it in-house. You don't take it to the media. You don't spout off in an interview. You don't throw all your teammates under the bus. You handle this in-house. Right? And every now and then you'll see some member of some professional sports team who did take it to the media their teammates are turning on them. I do not want to see what it's like in that locker room, right? Because they've broken the unwritten rule that we handle this in-house. Now, I've seen disputes like this go to law. I've seen this happen in a church. Not in a church that I've been in, but it was a church in a community that we lived in. A church that we, we had some connections to. And all of a sudden, the lawsuits between members of the church became public and the newspapers grabbed a hold of it like piranhas because the secular world loves a juicy story of a church that is failing. Why? Because the rest of the world looks at that and they say, see, that's all a church is. Just a bunch of selfish people who are just like the rest of us. They're just self-righteous. Church is just a money grab for all those people. It's just a bunch of selfish people trying to get their way and hurting everybody else just like the rest of the world. Why should I go to church? When this became public in this instance that I'm talking about, you saw it all over Facebook, and then the comments section was about the saddest thing you've ever seen. Because there were all these people that you could tell didn't know the Lord who were saying those things. They were saying, why would I ever want to be a part of a church? This is what happens. All those people are just money hungry and power hungry church is full of hypocrites. It ruined the witness of the church taking it public instead of being able, able to handle it in-house with the wisdom and the discernment of the elders. And so 
Paul says, when you have disputes among you, if it comes to that, we hope it never does. If it ever came to that, you handle it amongst yourselves. But then there's a very important principle in verse 7. Coming to us personally. Think about personally. What if someone was to wrong you in the church? Look at verse 7. Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What's he saying there? He's saying, for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of the relationship, why wouldn't you rather absorb the blow? The, the implication here is that there's going to be times where you're actually in the right, where someone is wrongly accusing you or wrongly trying to defraud you. And Paul says, why not rather be defrauded than take this out in public and ruin the witness of the body of Christ and ruin the unity of the church and ruin that relationship that you have with that person? Why wouldn't you sacrifice your own needs and wants, your own rights, your own reputation for the good of the body of Christ and that relationship? How many times have you seen a billboard or a commercial from a lawyer saying, thinking about a lawsuit? Why not rather just be wronged? You ever seen that? No, never, ever, right? Because they're out for the money. They, they want you to go to law. They want you to go to court. They want you to sue. And they want you to get your money. They appeal to everyone's selfish sense of, I need to get mine. But the ways of Jesus are completely countercultural. Walking with Christ sometimes will mean allowing yourself to be wronged for the good of a relationship or for the unity of the church as a whole. You know, you see this often when a matriarch or patriarch of a family dies. And then comes the, the question of who gets what among the siblings? Who gets what in the will? And what happens so many times? Fights. Fighting over stuff. And relationships are ruined forever because of stuff, because of money. And I don't think this is ever going to happen in my family, but I am convinced if it ever came to that in my own family, I'm just going to say to my sisters, take it all, I don't care. Take it all, I, I want the relationship, I want you. Now, my, I don't think my family's going to do that, right? I, I have a family that they've, they've got their head on their shoulders. You know, I, I think we love each other enough not to do that. But if it came down to it, that's what I would do. Just, just take it. Now, I, I say that now. I, I pray that God would give me the strength to do that, to not be selfish in the moment, right? Because our hearts are deceitful, and we are all prone to selfishness. But that's, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Remember how we said following Jesus means responding to being wronged differently than the world. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two miles. Now Jesus is talking there about our enemies. How much more should we absorb blows in the body of Christ with our brothers and sisters? Jesus says, someone slaps you on the right cheek, you have to swallow that urge to hit back. 
and you turn the other one. You respond in love and peace. You diffuse the conflict with love. Jesus says if someone sues you and wants to take your tunic, back then, you know, it's a piece of clothing, offer them more than they asked for. Love them in such a way that it would confuse them, that it would make them think, what in the world? How can you, how can you do that? If someone forces you to go one mile, think about back then in Jesus' day, a Roman soldier coming up to a Jew on the road and saying, hey, piece of trash, Jew, I've got this, this load that I'm carrying, but I don't want to carry it anymore, so I'm going to make you do it. You don't have a choice. We're going a mile. Let's go. And after the mile's over, you look right back at that Roman soldier and say, would you like me to carry this for another mile for you? That's where we get the phrase, going the extra mile. Jesus We get that phrase from Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Christian, we don't respond to being wrong the way the world does. Paul is saying the unity and the witness of the church should be more important to us than our own rights and reputations. Our relationships with one another should be more important to us than our own rights and reputations. Now, having said all of that, Some of us might be thinking, okay, John, that sounds great, but practically I can't do that. I can't. I can't let someone walk all over me. I can't be defrauded like that. I have to stand up and defend myself. Where would you get the power to do something like this? I can't. How can you have the power to let someone wrong you like this and then not defend yourself? Only in Christ. Only resting in Christ who is our defender. The defense rests when it rests in Christ. You can rest from defending yourself if you are resting in Christ, who is your defender. Without Christ, think about this. Without Christ, you must defend yourself. Without Christ, your reputation among others is all you have. You've got to defend yourself. You've got to stand up for yourself if you don't have Christ. Without Christ, this life is all there is. So get what you can while you can. Without Christ, it's survival of the fittest. It's every person for themselves. Without Christ, without Christ, justice will not be done unless you make it happen. That's without Christ. I mean, think about it. This is why our world right now is so consumed with righting all the wrongs of both the present and the past. It's because without Christ, justice will never be done unless we force it to happen ourselves. We've got to get out there and make it happen. We've got to protest. We've got to get violent sometimes. We've got to make the people who are oppressing realize that if they don't do something, that we're going to make them do something. We've got to take this in our hands for ourselves without Christ. But with Christ, what does God say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Justice is not ours to take. We must leave justice in the hands of the one who can provide true justice. Because the problem is none of us can bring about true justice. Not in our our little relationships, not in a society level. None of us can bring about true justice because every human being is sinful and selfish. Even the most upright judge cannot dole out perfect justice. But justice will be done perfectly 
one day. You see, with Jesus, you can rest from defending yourself. You see? With Jesus, you have the freedom to rest from defending yourself. With Christ, all wrongs will be dealt with in the end. With Christ, we know that all abusers and liars and oppressors will face justice. They will have to stand before the judgment seat of God. Your abuser, your oppressor, the one who spreads lies about you, they will face the judgment seat of God. And either they will pay for their sins for all eternity in hell, or they will have to look into the eyes of the one who paid for those sins for them in their place. True justice will be done for every abuser and oppressor and liar. And we can rest in that in Christ. With Christ, we can rest in that. We don't have to make it happen. It will be taken care of in the end. In Christ, we have a defender. You know what Jesus is doing right now? The Bible tells us what he's doing right now. Paul says Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God right now, interceding for us defending us against Satan, the accuser. The Bible calls Satan multiple times the accuser who accuses us day and night before God. And so picture Satan coming before God. You remember Job chapter 1? Satan actually came before God. Apparently every now and then he can, and he can speak with God. Well, Job chapter 1, Satan comes before God. He does this all the time, apparently. Picture Satan coming before God and saying, God, John Davis is down there sinning. He deserves punishment. Here's a list of all the ways that John Davis has sinned against you, against other people. He's broken your law. And so you've got to punish him. And God looks back at Satan and says, you know what, you're right. All of those things you said are true. But Jesus, show him. And Jesus is at the right hand of God and he still has the scars on his hands and feet. Because Jesus paid for my sins. And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? No one can. Because Jesus has taken care of it. The worst you can say about me, even if it might be true, does not stick because Christ has suffered for my sins. He is at the right hand of the throne of God right now interceding for us. So I don't need to defend myself to any of y'all. It doesn't matter what other people think about me. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about you until you die, even after you die. All that matters is what God thinks about you at Judgment Day. I'll end with this. One of the most famous preachers of the church in church history is a man by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield preached in England and in America around the time of the 1750s, right before the Revolutionary War. He, he gathered so many to hear him preach in outdoor, open-air preaching. Without a microphone, he would preach to upwards of 10 to 15,000 people. Without a microphone, without amplification. Amazing man, amazing gift of God and the voice that he had. That's how many people were coming to hear him preach and hear the message of the gospel from George Whitfield. Well, Arnold Dalimore wrote a, a, a huge biography of George Whitfield. It's two big volumes, but in the first couple pages, there's gold. Arnold Dalimore says this about George Whitfield. He says, With his eye fixed on his accounting in heaven, 
he sought no justification of himself on earth. When urged by friends to reply to certain false accusations, lest he be lastingly stigmatized, he replied, I'm content to wait until the judgment day for the clearing up of my character. When I am dead, I desire no epitaph but this. Here lies George Whitfield. What kind of man he was, the great day will discover. Do you have that peace? Do you have the peace to not defend yourself in front of others? To not care about your reputation? And to know that God will clear everything up in the end to just leave it to Him? Do you have that peace? If you don't, you can have it in Christ. But only in Christ. Only in Christ can we have that peace because we know that Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us. And that when He returns... Perfect justice will be done. All wrongs will be made right. And the only thing that matters is what God thinks of me for all eternity. He will clear everything up in the end. Do you have that peace? You can have it today in Jesus. Here in just a moment, we're going to spend some time in private, reflective prayer. And during this time, during these few moments, we ask that everyone... Every one of us in here, respond to God, to whatever He's laid upon your heart. It's a time of private response. Every single one of us has something, some way that we need to respond to the word that God has just given to us. And so we're going to spend some time in silent prayer, going to God and responding to what He's said to us this morning. After a few minutes of that, we'll have a time where you can respond publicly for anyone who needs to do so. But right now, let's all spend just a few moments praying silently, responding to God for what He's laid on our heart.